0: You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. With the proliferation of social media, misinformation and disinformation spread with the click of a trackpad. These days, a trusted institution like PBS, nationally recognized for its sober, nonpartisan news and family-friendly programming, must act faster than ever to respond to audience concerns.
1: I think my very first column as a public editor for PBS was about a cartoon. Now, I have 41 years as an investigative journalist, so I don't you know, take my job very seriously. But the first thing I had to write about as PBS's public editor was about Arthur. And the last 10 seconds of one episode in which there's a same-sex marriage. You can imagine how a same-sex marriage on a children's show would go over in certain parts of the country.
0: I'm Lila LaHood, and this is Civic. Civic. Ricardo Sandoval-Palos is the public editor at PBS. He is an award-winning investigative journalist and editor, and we're honored that he serves on the board of the San Francisco Public Press.
1: It's an honor to be a part of the organization and and do what I can to sort of help expand the presence of and the future of the public press.
0: Yeah. So I know we're going to be talking about misinformation and disinformation today, but I wanted to have you tell us a little bit first. Tell us about your connections to San Francisco.
1: (laughs) You know, it's it's funny. Is that my connection goes way, way back. As a kid, I mean, I was born in Mexico and, and raised in San Diego. And, and when I reached my teen years, my mom, who always complained that it, <laughs> I had a habit of not listening to her, thought that I might have a better time as a rebellious teenager hanging out with my aunt and uncle in San Francisco. My uncle's a sculptor up here, an artist of many years in, in San Francisco. And my at the time, my aunt owned a butcher shop on York and 24th and at the York Meat Market is where I learned a lot of discipline on how to how to be customer service and hanging out with, with people every day day in and day out my uncle was teaching me a lot about craft and carving, and it was a, a really wonderful, eye-opening, enriching environment that really actually exposed a whole new world to me. And it got me to the point where I just fell in love with San Francisco. Uh-huh. And that became my home, even when I went to Humboldt State University as uh, later on. And even despite my travels all over the world and being based as a Latin American correspondent for U.S. newspapers for 10 years, San Francisco was always home and it continues to be in in my heart.
0: So let's talk about what you do now at PBS. What exactly do you do?
1: Basically, I am complaint central. And I simply describe it as saying, okay, listen, if you have a problem with Elmo, right, Uh you call me. But you'd be surprised how many people have a problem with Elmo. And so I get the complaints, I get viewers who are upset with something from every aspect of PBS, of public broadcasting, Uh, the majority of the complaints that come to me are about news coverage Mm -hmm. through the news hour and news programs like Frontline. And the majority of the complaints, unfortunately, I believe, unfortunately, are ideologically based because there's something in a newscast or something on a PBS documentary that people have seen that they disagree with. And they come to me and complain. Well, what I try to do as the public editor is take from that stream of complaints, and we're talking hundreds of emails a day, and find streams of thought, find lines of discussion that I can then amplify perhaps and look for common ground to carry out a conversation between our our viewers and our creatives at PBS. And it's important because PBS is not a traditional network. A lot of people think it's PBS and it has stations all over the country. But in reality, PBS is quite simply a digital platform for creatives from around the world, producers, journalists, all manner of visual and now digital creatives. And the platform is there for them which is a reason why every single public media station in the U.S. has a big amount of autonomy. So it's not like NBC or CBS or ABC, where headquarters in New York calls the shots, Mm -hmm. right? In the PBS example, PBS controls, say, the primetime programming from 7 to 10, but the rest of the clock belongs to the local station. So there's a lot of things that go into that kind of a relationship, which leads to, I think... Uh, misunderstandings among viewers who think that they saw something on PBS and why is PBS doing this or that, Mm -hmm. when in reality it's it's a decision that was made at the local level. So what I often do as the ombudsman or the public editor is I find that the parties who are involved in in these programs put them together with the people who might be complaining about one thing or another, and then finding ways to resolve situations.
0: That's interesting. You said a couple of things in your explanation. So in some cases, you might be solving a specific problem. But in other cases, it sounds like you're bringing together, you're aggregating the sentiment that right. you're hearing. So you bring it back to the news producers. And what would they do with that information?
1: Well, if we have to run a correction, we figure out how we're going to do it. If we end up deciding or figuring out that we did do something wrong and it made it to air or it made it to, to the digital website, then we figure out how to make it right right? Give an example. We had a situation on a show that on its digital website had a headline that was incorrect. So I reached out to the executive producer of that show and was assured that they were going to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. By either running the correction or telling viewers and online visitors that the information that we had published was incorrect. Problem is the correction was an argument, which is easy to get into on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so the original error was made worse by the reaction of some of the people on the staff of the show. And so I stepped in after hundreds of people complained to me about the actions of the individuals on the show, I stepped in and I sought to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. So I have to go in and find out how this was possibly allowed to get onto the digital space, in this case on Twitter. And you explained that and you explain what happened and why that was, but at the same time you also tell viewers that at PBS we have standards and practices that we take seriously and remind the creatives who made the mistake that they didn't follow the guidelines. Mm -hmm. And you put that out there, and the way I look at those kinds of columns and those kinds of episodes is I call them teachable moments because it helps me explain how the system works, and hopefully it helps viewers and audiences understand how it works on the creative side.
0: Yeah, so a lot of this is about transparency and being transparent with your audience about how you do things.
1: Exactly. Uh, there's so much that goes on behind the screen, right, mm-hmm. and goes on be- behind the keyboard that needs explanation, that deserves to be brought out when there is a misunderstanding, or when there is an issue that needs further explanation, that sometimes viewers complain that they didn't get.
0: Yeah, are there any specific examples that you would share that either you found particularly interesting or you just did not see coming?
1: I think my very first column as a public editor for PBS was about a cartoon. Mm-hmm. Now I have forty-one years as an investigative journalist, so I don't you know take my job very seriously. But the first thing I had to write about as PBS's public editor was about Arthur. Okay, and the last 10 seconds of one episode in which there's a same-sex marriage. Well, you can imagine how a same-sex marriage on a children's show would go over in certain parts of the country. Mm -hmm. We saw, PBS saw, that a number of local stations, Alabama, Missouri, Texas, and other states, declined to run the show. So it also launched a barrage of complaints to PBS about why is PBS doing this kind of programming for kids, right? And it launched this whole ideological war on email and on Twitter and texts to me. And so I realized that I had to write about this Mm -hmm. and understand what viewers were complaining about, but also reach out to the creatives who were responsible for Arthur to find out what the motivation was to get all this out there on air. And it turns out that in the places, some places where the program was not shown was done so not because the producers involved or the local station managers were afraid that you know, the locals in, in certain parts of the South were going to be upset by showing you know, a same-sex marriage on a kid's show, but they were concerned because at that moment, state legislatures in some of these very conservative states were reconsidering the budgets of the public media outlets in that state. And as one station manager told me, he says, I just didn't want to give these guys one more reason not to fund public media, you know, at this time. So that you know, that becomes a real human and in some cases understandable, a reason why they withheld the actual showing of that show, of that program. So you can understand that. And I think reasonable people would see that and says, well, that might be a good reason, right? So you find this common ground. And I had to do that amid this national furor over this one cartoon show. So it just shows you how even what you might think is an innocuous piece of programming, an Arthur episode, right, would cause such an ideological furor. And those are the kinds of things where I feel like I have to step in and do some explaining and trying to bring sides together so we can understand each other.
0: I can imagine that that also must have been heartbreaking too for some of the people involved in creating the content who are trying to tell stories for children and families that reflect the lives they are living and would want to include that story and feel like it's yes. important and something to celebrate.
1: You know, and it's funny because as we all know, children of that age that of the target audience for Arthur, they don't care about you know the individual's sex, you know, are they male or female. They just know people as people and they say, "Oh, it's cool that they're hanging out and they're going to get married." They're more freaked out that their teacher had a life outside the school, you know? And and that reflects real life. I mean, that happens in real life as kids at that age. For them, that's not an issue. The, the same sex nature of this union was not an issue. It was the fact that their principal was getting married. And what the hell's <laughs> going on there, you know?
0: But if Patty's his sister, then... Who is Mr. Ratburn marrying? <laughs> mm. This is the best cake I've ever had. I wonder how many times Patty sent it back. Who cares? It was worth it. Mr. Rappern is married. I still can't believe it. Yep, it's a brand new world. But there's one thing that teachers should never, ever do. What? You spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about misinformation and disinformation. What distinguishes these from each other and why are they problematic? And sometimes you're dealing with internal things, but then sometimes that information gets carried out beyond where you no longer have control of the message around that thing. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Let's define the two real quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Misinformation is, I think, in my book is is a broader spectrum of things people putting out arguments they don't understand but they like and they think it's honest or they believe in that argument and they repeat it, Mm -hmm. right? That's misinforming someone. Disinforming someone is a more purposeful, say, campaign that's launched. It's like whenever I would get a flood of complaints about Yamiche Alcindor Mm -hmm. and NewsHour, you peel it back, you roll back, you go back farther into the controversy and you find that that complaint is based on something they saw on Fox News, which then launched, usually launched... A campaign against Yamiche, right? Mm -hmm. And what was said about her, what was said in public about her latest intervention at the White House, if you look at it, was based on ideological distaste for what she was doing. Mm -hmm. That is disinforming an audience by complaining that what she was doing or saying was because she was liberal, right? Mm -hmm. And you look at it and you say, well, she was just being a reporter, an aggressive reporter, which is good. We found researchers in England who were looking at Facebook data and found that there were bots being launched that were responsible for something to the tune of 14,000 streams of disinformation aimed at people who were making political, ideological comments on Facebook. These bots would come in and put messages and make comments about the discourse. That's disinformation, and I think it weaves its way into the public space.
0: You know, it's interesting what you said about the bots being set up to present information to people who were involved in political discourse, because in a way, that's a very effective strategy for infecting things. Because if these are people who are already talking and likely to share, if you give them something where you have an agenda and you want that to be spread, what an amazing way to get it to infect the public discourse.
1: Exactly. And that's really different, for example, from a mistake that might be made, say, in a documentary. We had a situation at PBS where the, a documentary was going to air on Independent Lens, one of our shows. I wrote about this. And it had to do with the growing relationship, increasingly tight relationship between U.S. evangelicals and the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what happened in that situation, it was an award-winning filmmaker, an otherwise very powerful, very interesting, provocative film. But the producers of the film and the editors had compressed statements made by Donald Trump and by Bill Barr and other administration officials that the sound clips were so compressed that it sounded like they were saying something in one stream of conversation when it was actually tape and audio brought in from longer speeches Mm. and that's too tight of a crop of that kind of conversation right so much so that it made the clip say something totally different than what donald trump actually had said Mm -hmm. in the course of a 20-minute statement he did say everything that was said in that single clip but over the course of 20 minutes not in the individual clip that was presented that kind of editing violates standards.
0: Yeah. So I mean, because
1: of that, that documentary didn't air on PBS.
0: Yeah, I mean, that comes down to fairness. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. As, as journalists, we have a great deal of responsibility in making sure that we're presenting the information fairly.
1: Exactly, that's it's very true. Again, a differentiation between that kind of a mistake purposeful or not, mm-hmm. you know, and then as journalists I know how that can happen, mm-hmm. right? Because there is something being said that you think, wow, this is pretty good. This is it really goes to the heart of the story I'm trying to tell. But it's surrounded by a mess. And if you ever hear <laughs> Donald Trump speak, you know, to get those nuggets out as a journalist, it would take you some time to try to get it from all this chaff, as it were. So you can see how that could happen when you're trying to edit something down for clarity. Yes. Uh, But you can go too far. And in this case, it went too far.
0: We're talking about misinformation and disinformation and fairness. And how are these things different from other sorts of information that might be contagious and influential? Like, you know, we talk about terms like marketing or propaganda. Where do these terms overlap and where do they diverge? Obviously, people who are putting this out there are trying to have some sort of influence. When is that okay? And where do we draw lines and say, no, this kind of activity is inappropriate or dangerous?
1: Yeah. As journalists, we often pride ourselves, and we were taught this in journalism school and by all the, the ancient editors who chided us for misspelling words and so forth, that we needed to remain objective. Mm -hmm. We need to be objective. And a lot of email I get that complains perhaps about NewsHour or Frontline, they always preface it by saying McNeil and Lehrer must be rolling in their grave right now for the egregious ideological error that was committed on the show last night. Well, it's not really the case. And Mm -hmm. I think both of those fine journalists would be proud of the way sometimes we go after the truth.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because... Objectivity is <laughs> objectivity is subjective. There is no true objectivity. We can't do that because we're humans. we come into every situation with a subjective set of notions. What we need to do as journalists to make sure is that we're right. Mm-hmm. So in my book, truth, finding the truth as best as we can discern it in that moment is far more important than pure objectivity, right? Fairness comes by portraying, an event, a controversy in its full dimensions, Mm -hmm. all right? And so if you can present all the dimensions of an issue or a controversy, you've achieved what is classically seen as fairness is when you're getting the other side. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there isn't another side. For Christ's sake, who could be for nuclear war, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who can be for a worse off planet in Mm -hmm. in many cases, right? Who can honestly think that these days that climate change is not man-made? when you have 98% of the scientists out there saying that it is. So in those kinds of cases, you know, you can't say that, well, the other side says X, right? What you're after in reality is for the best possible version of the truth that you can get in this particular story.
0: It's interesting because you're right. I mean, we need nuance and context and details and, you know, when possible, data. And the hard part, too, is sometimes the version of the story that people see is the very brief version or just the headline. And we need all of that other information behind there to bolster and support what is being said.
1: That's very true. You know, listen, uh, we had a situation at, at PBS where we posted something during Black History Month. And it's a listicle. Mm-hmm. And in the trade talk, and the marketing talk, a listicle is a facts, a set of facts, you know, little items that, hey, we think you might find these items interesting. Mm -hmm. So it was for Black History Month. And it was 10 things that maybe you didn't know about African Americans. And one of those items was a short paragraph that said Betty Boop was based originally on a black jazz singer. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So the headline for that would be Betty Boop was black. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not exactly the correct history of Betty Boop. But that Nugget went viral. There were sites all over the country repeating that Nugget and attributing it to PBS, saying PBS says has confirmed that Betty Boop was black. Well, the grandson of the original illustrator reached out to PBS and said this is a problem because that's not exactly the case. I have the family's full history. I have the history of Betty Boop should anybody want to read it or look at it. And in fact, the history of Betty Boop was far more complicated and complex. Yes, it was partially based on a number of African-American entertainers of the time, but also some white jazz singers. And that's in the very description of uh, the original illustrator of Betty Boop. The problem was is that we didn't have any of that nuance or a more detailed history in that nugget. Mm-hmm. And then we made a mistake by not taking the item down when it was clear that it was incorrect. Mm -hmm. It went viral. The illustrators of Betty Boop complained to me and made it pretty clear that they were upset about this in a very professional way, but they were not happy. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go in there and, and see if we could present what actually was the history of Betty Boop, but also find out what happened in PBS that led to this being published. And since it was published by the promotion side... The explanation I got back from the promotion team was that, well, we're not journalists, so, you know, we thought it would be okay just to put this up there. And my answer was is that, unfortunately, viewers and audiences at home don't make the distinction whether it's someone in digital marketing versus someone at news hour. They see us as all the same. We are content providers under the trusted banner of PBS. If we don't act quickly enough to correct a record, it could really damage the trust that people put into us. So I explained what happened, we detailed the history of Betty Boop, we described our standards internally for these kinds of situations, and in the end, we got a real nice note back from the family of the illustrator saying, thank you for putting that out there, and as we've seen now, that nugget has disappeared from the digital landscape, Mm -hmm. hopefully.
0: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I could see how, you know, the way you describe it, you can see how something like that suddenly becomes much more complicated just because of the way information gets shared. Any other examples you would want to share with us?
1: One of the things that's fascinated me about the whole world of fake news and deep fakes and misinformation is, again, also very complicated. And it also involves what is a very well-known human characteristic, and that's confirmation bias, Mm -hmm. where we're always looking for something that validates how we feel that confirms our bias. And we had a situation at PBS Recently, where one of the popular characters in Sesame Street, Grover, Mm -hmm. apparently dropped an F-bomb on the air. (laughs) It went viral. You can look it up on YouTube, Grover and the F-bomb. You'll see what it's all about. And when I first heard the episode replayed, I listened to it, and indeed I heard the F-word. And I thought to myself, how could this be? So I reached out to the creators of the show, and I asked, can you send me the original script? So I get the original script. And I read out loud to myself what the original script read. Mm -hmm. And I replayed the episode and I heard the original script. And I thought, wow, this is interesting.
0: I move it to follow you. Move the camera. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that sounds like an excellent idea. Just to be clear, what Grover said was, yes, yes, that sounds like an excellent idea.
1: So I tested it with some other folks, and the same thing happened. We were using F-bombs in a conversation, and lo and behold, we played the Grover episode, and there is Grover dropping the F-bomb. And then I read the same original script back to these folks in this control unit, and then we listened to the episode again, and we heard the original script.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Right. We shut it off, and then we all started dropping the F-bomb again, and we replayed the same episode for the third time, and we all heard Grover dropping the F-bomb, which a linguist described to me as a form of our mind telling us that we're going to hear this because everybody else around us is telling us that Grover's dropping the F-bomb, check it out, and we hear the F-bomb, right? <laughs> and so what does that tell me? That tells me that as humans, we're inclined to pay attention to and we're hopeful. We're hoping to hear what we expect to hear. I think politicians, by and large, and This has been going on in advertising since, you know, anybody can remember. Mm -hmm. But the lesson is, is that we as humans are ready to hear you. And if you tell us something that we want to hear, we're going to follow you, which I think is why we're seeing this explosion of misinformation. As the communications channels increase around us, we see this also increasing.
0: You know, I have so many different questions on this, but there's one thing I want to make sure we do, which is look at what's happening locally. You know, San Francisco Public Press, Civic, we pay attention to what's happening here. So, so much of this discussion about misinformation and disinformation does seem to be about national and global discussions. What is the local lens for this discussion? At that point, are we getting down to the level of rumors and gossip? Or what would you say, what perspective do you have in terms of these issues on the local level?
1: I'm going to take the the population of unhoused San Franciscans is mm-hmm. an example. This is a problem that's been, that has lived here in San Francisco. Literally, it's lived here in San Francisco for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. It's always been something that's been high on the political radar, right? I think the problem then becomes is that we expect it to be a problem, mm-hmm. that we expect there to be no solutions, that when possible solutions are offered up, there is really stark division as to how we're going to accept those arguments, how we're going to take those arguments in. And I think it goes to the central fear that I have that we can't even agree that when we're having an ideological debate about something, we can't even agree on a common set of facts upon which we need to build a discussion or a debate. And so the problem then is we don't listen to each other. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the problem of unhoused people in San Francisco has been around so long that we've already made up our minds as to how this thing is not going to be solved or how it is going to be solved that makes it difficult to really to bring in some innovative solutions. And I get that. I see that still lingering in the debate about this issue. Now, I find it fascinating that that we talk about all this, and yet we don't really get at a deep discussion as to what the root problem is. And it would be interesting to me if we can figure out somehow, for example, to – Let's find a person and find out who may have recently become unhoused and say, what brought you here? And I bet you you find a pretty interesting story. And if you can explore that story and dissect that story a little bit further and take it down to its roots, I think it would be the kind of resonant story that people can understand is, well, I can see that happening to me.
0: I think almost anyone, you can empathize with an individual story. But with so many people who are in these circumstances, we can't tell everyone's story. So what do you do? How do you get from the individual story from one person who, it is good to know these stories and to be able to illustrate what's going on. But at the end of the day, we are talking about large numbers of people. Sure. So how Uh, do you avoid misinformation when when you do have to talk about large numbers of people? Well, listen,
1: I think in that kind of a case, and this is true for any kind of story that you, you know, as newspaper reporters and newspaper people, we've always been taught, all right, you take a story, right, and you get a good example. And that example will serve as the sort of like the narrative thread for Mm -hmm. you. Story. Mm-hmm. But you can also do that with data and with information mm-hmm. that you can get. And there's a lot of emerging data as to where people are coming from and how they're ending up on the streets. Right. Right? And mental health is a huge factor here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay? So if you can find someone who has lived that problem and has those conflicts in their life, there are enough people out there, and I'm sure you can find an interesting, compelling character. That serves as a model for that large data set that this person recently had an injury and got hooked on Oxy and ended up on the streets because they were just, they turned to heroin or something. And that's a cause often of that kind of a breakdown in one's life that leads to that dire outcome, right? That serves as an example for a larger population of people who are on the streets. It becomes more resonant. And if you can take it back to the point where they were part of a family, where they were part of a structure, and find out what it was that broke down in the process, I think you'd be talking to and reaching a lot of people who are living similar situations and have similar family situations. And that's when you take a large national and even global story and you personalize it. Mm-hmm. And I think you actually connect. You have a chance of connecting with a number of potential audiences. Every story has the possibility of being either local or national, mm-hmm. right? I mean, a lot of the things that we do as local journalists has a place on the national landscape. Yes. Um, I commissioned recently for another publication, a Latino publication, I commissioned a, a story about reparations that are actually happening in Evanston, Illinois. Mm. So African-Americans who have a demonstrable history of being subject to racist, Lending practices in Evanston, Illinois, the city council voted to set up a fund to repay those families. That's amazing. And one city is doing this Mm -hmm. on its own, not waiting for the national debate to be settled Mm -hmm. out about reparations. And they've taken action on their own. And I thought that that action by this one city council needed to be then shared with audiences around the country because there's so much stasis in that political debate right now around reparations. It's an issue that doesn't need a huge national resolution, perhaps. It's just something that a local entity can take a first stab at. And I thought that was an example of how that can be done.
0: So this is interesting because now we're back to talking about, you know, news organizations and trusted outlets like PBS sharing information. But when we talk about misinformation, Things get complicated when we get down to the level of intent. And some of this gets out there, as you said, because people mistakenly share things that aren't true or are a little bit dubious. But then there are people out there who are intentionally trying to spread information that is false. Right. What is the motivation here? I mean, maybe I'm getting too much in the weeds on that. Well,
1: no, actually, I think you're onto something. And it's something that's very current, Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson. I don't know if you've noticed that there's a three-part series in the New York Times that, yeah. about Tucker Carlson and the phenomena of Tucker Carlson. But what's interesting about some of the things that the New York Times is talking about in that series is that it's stuff that's been happening in the media now for decades. Mm-hmm. Before Tucker Carlson, there was Lou Dobbs. There were other personalities that were purposefully sending out messages, for example, about immigrants, painting them as dangerous, painting them as usurpers, using all manner of argument to get people riled up politically, that it is now difficult and it's almost impossible to get immigration reform on the national level because there is so much of this emotion that surrounds this issue that's untrue. Mm -hmm. For example, people say, oh, they got to get in line before they come to this country. There is no line for immigration to the U.S., especially for people who are trying to escape dire economic circumstances that are also then compounded by violence in their own country and so that debate has been so cast in such a negative light by going back decades to the likes of lou dobbs that now you have tucker carlson who lives in the space and is making money off of the space that begs the question where was the new york times decades ago when these kinds of messages were starting to emanate from the media
0: what can real people the readers the listeners the viewers do about proliferation of inaccurate information. Do people care? How do you help friends and family not get taken in if they see something on on Facebook and suddenly yeah. veer off in a direction that might not be productive?
1: You don't have to scratch too far to find the sources of some of this misinformation and disinformation because it takes too much time to try to cover up the tracks. You know mm-hmm. that so so much of this stuff is easily exposed as as fake news or fake information. And that is actually what a lot of people now are using it as ways of correcting fake news. They use geolocation for digital clips, videos that are faked and manipulated. You can find out, you can find the source, the original source of a lot of this stuff online and with some easily obtainable tools that you can use at your own home, even to just say, well, this is not the original video, it's been doctored, right? But you have to care. And I think that is the real critical thing is we have to, as journalists, figure out a way, and this is important and this is a real good job for local media, So you have to make them care about these issues enough that they're going to take an extra minute to examine that message to make sure that it is accurate and trustworthy, right? And that's where I think is our space as journalists is real important is that we ought to have that assignment of making our audiences care about these issues. And that's critical in my yeah. book.
0: You know, when you talk about trust, too, and skepticism, where do you draw the line? Like, if individuals are questioning everything, do we get to a situation where then people question things like vaccines? And can you talk a little bit about maybe the role of local news organizations in bridging that gap, where people might be thinking, I don't know who or what to trust? How do we overcome that?
1: I think you can overcome it on a local basis with trusted sources. And go into the communities themselves and find people in the communities that you, that you serve mm-hmm. and have them speak on behalf of the truth in your stories. So don't wait for the CDC to come out and say something. There's experts here who can tell you all about vaccines. Yes. And in a bunch of different communities. So it can be customized to a community. And even it can be customized to a language
0: mm-hmm.
1: and a culture. And that's how you can immediately overcome some of those kinds of things. But it is difficult, even at PBS we had a situation recently that I wrote about where on the top 10 of now known medical quacks out there who are spreading disinformation Mm -hmm. is a doctor who has videos still showing on PBS's YouTube page and nobody noticed Mm -hmm. in-house. Until I was informed by a public discourse on Mm -hmm. Twitter as why is PBS still running messages from this doctor who's now been shown to be one of the leading purveyors of disinformation about vaccines. Why are her videos still up on PBS's YouTube site? And all it took was a question from me as the public editor to the managers of that site to say, hey, did you know? And it Mm -hmm. turns out they didn't. They hadn't realized. And immediately those videos were brought down.
0: Ricardo, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you think we should discuss?
1: I think, you know, what's pretty cool about what we're doing here at the public press and what is incumbent on on us as news guardians for the public in San Francisco is that it's enabling, I think, a segment of the San Francisco population to stand up and say, hey, I need more information about a certain subject. Mm -hmm. And I'm often overlooked in discussions in City Hall or down at the cop shop or in Sacramento. So I'm turning to you, public press, as my interlocutor. So I think that what's a mind-bender and a mind-opener for us as journalists is that there are a growing number of people out there who care. And if we could just tailor our messages to them so it's understandable in the culture and, and in the language and where they live and how they live in our great community here, I think you amplify a story, you amplify your reach, you're more engaged with an audience by working with them in producing the news. And this is what I love about community journalism. This is what I love about the public press is that we're down there and we understand, we know what's going on on the streets because we're part of it.
0: That was Ricardo Sandoval-Palos, public editor at PBS. I'm Lila LaHood, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced by KSFP-LP, a project of the San Francisco Public Press. Our team includes producer Liana Wilcox, contributor Sylvie Sturm, and contributor Mel Baker, who's also program director for KSFP. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Thanks for listening.